So I'm super excited to let all of our listeners know that we have our first sponsor. And this is a big deal for me. It's a big deal in many ways. But the most important thing is that I wouldn't choose a sponsor that I didn't believe in. And our sponsor is Denny Tato. She is the president of Corporate Consciousness, and she uses a tool called the Enneagram. And if you don't know what the Enneagram is, it's an amazing assessment, and it really helps in building emotional intelligence. I've used it. My husband has used it. I've recommended it to teams and to clients. But it's not just the tool. It's really more than that. It's Denny. Denny has this innate ability to coach teams and individuals. I know this because I coach others too. So take it from me. She's pretty amazing. So if you want to develop your greatest asset, your employees, you're ready to take it to the next level, check out corpconsciousness.com. You know, I say everything starts with character. Then there's exposure because what you see you can be. Out of that exposure comes relationships, and the relationships are the people that can help you do it and help you set up a platform. Failing. 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 I know. When we talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life, a blessing. Your and then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, listeners, I have been working on getting Darren Hall here for, I don't know, six to nine months. I've used tactics of texting him, calling him. <laughs> but finally, I think it was his wife that got him. The real boss. The real boss. The real boss. So Darren Hall is the CEO and president of Civitas, which is a development group, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, but welcome, my friend. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I'm so happy you're here. So uh, let's start out for our listeners. We always go over where your background is. Where did you grow up? I know you live in the Natty now, but where yes. did you grow up? So I grew up in Baltimore, um, Baltimore, born and raised Um and then my college town is Atlanta. So I went to college in Atlanta. Where'd you go to college? Went to Morehouse College in yeah, Atlanta. Yeah, I knew and you were going to give that a shout out. Morehouse, that's right. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, stayed there, graduated, went back home and started working. I'm a banker by training. Okay. And I, I did, did not know that. Yeah, I did that for, was a banker for about 12 years. Okay. And then from there- And it, hold on, is this like the 90s when everybody's moving to Atlanta? So I started- you know, 85, okay. went down to Atlanta when, you know, still two-lane highways. Okay. So a little bit a while ago, right? And, and so then I went back um, in 92 for business school, got an MBA in finance. Okay. And then I went to work in San Francisco for Wells Fargo oh. in a commercial banking program. And I was there for two years or so. And then I wanted to get married. And my wife was here in Cincinnati at the time. Yes, because she worked for? Federated. It was yes. Lazarus at that time. Yeah, crazy. And we decided that we should be in the same city. So she transferred to Federated's headquarters in New York. And I got a bigger position at Bank Boston um, in Connecticut. So I was on the commercial platform there. And we lived in South Norwalk uh, for about two years, got married in 95. Okay. Weird thing is I proposed to her in Cincinnati um, Christmas Eve oh of 1994. Oh, my gosh. So we never thought we'd be back, but it's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's good. Yeah. It's good. Okay. So you work in banking. Yep. You guys move around yep. quite a bit. 
And then after banking, what? Um, so after banking, so banking took us from Connecticut um, back to Atlanta just before the Olympics in 96. Yes. And I worked at the long-term credit bank of Japan, okay. which at that time was the sixth largest bank in the world. Wow. And I worked there for four years until the bank got into an SNL um, kind of crisis in Japan and had to get out of all overseas business. So okay. closing down an office led me to go to Coca-Cola. Um, and I went to work at Coca-Cola's internal bank and then M&A at Coca-Cola. So that's how I got out of banking. Okay. All right. So how'd you get into development? So it's a, it's a twisted route that I've followed. But, yeah. Um, so I was... I was um, Doing M&A at Coke, and we had just come back from doing a deal um, to buy a a source water plant in Kenya. Okay. Not because we wanted it, but we didn't want Pepsi to have it. Interesting. So we bought the plant to shut it down. And I'm sitting there looking around when we got back, and I just said, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. I'm not doing anything substantial. I'm selling fizzy water around the world. And so I really just wanted to step back and say, well, what's important? And I knew that I, I wanted to be a connector, and I had paid my dues in terms of banking. I'd done, you know, small commercial, large commercial, M&A, and now this. And I said, what I do see, the people that are getting um, promoted and really being successful are mining their networks, hmm. right? And so my networks were in Maryland, where I'm from, yes. and Georgia, where I was. Um, and I wanted to, what I call, bridge the gap between opportunity and capital. Right. And so people had great ideas, but they didn't have the money. Interesting. And other groups of people had money, but didn't know where to necessarily place it. And I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a company to take on that. Right. So this was 1999 or so. Okay. And, you know, I was all full of vigor mm -hmm. and I, I quit my job and I started a company which I called DCH Capital Group. And it was the greatest thing that I did, but it was also, um, I was naive to do that. So I took on a lot. I made money. I spent money. I lost money. Um, and But what it taught me was how to um, do everything. I had to be the deal maker. I had to be the marketing person. I had to be the tech person. All the things that you don't really know yeah. um, when, when you're working in a big corporation. So I did that. Um, until 2008. Okay. Um, and then the real estate market really started to crash in Atlanta. Yeah. And I had to go back and get a job. Yeah. Um, what you know, was I, that like? You want to talk about that a little bit? It was significant because, you know, I'd poured my heart and soul into this company. Yeah. I quit a job. I started it. Um, when I started off, I was just placing money. But as I realized that I had kind of stumbled into... Um, kind of impact investing or social investing because and I didn't know that then, mm -hmm. but my clients that I got were um, nonprofit organizations, churches, um, or high net worth people um, that would let me have a shot at a deal because that time I was really young, right? And so <laughs> you get the chance to do the deals that nobody else could get done. And mm -hmm. so I wound up really taking on um, clients that were really embedded in their neighborhoods. And so what I realized that I was doing was if I helped a church to expand yeah. um, or start a jobs entity, that was really something good for the folks that were there. 
or if I helped an entrepreneur get a line of credit to expand, then I was creating jobs. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's what I was doing. And um, while I was giving a presentation, just as the market started to decline, yeah, um, I was giving a presentation to a church group. And it just so happened that um, I was speaking to a group and one of the trustees that was there was a consultant for the Annie E. Casey Foundation based in Atlanta. Okay. And so Annie, Annie, Annie E. Casey okay. is the mother of Jim Casey that started UPS. Oh. So it was headquartered in Baltimore. So I was going back and forth between Baltimore and Atlanta, but UPS is also headquartered in Atlanta. Okay. So this was a foundation that was really, really funded in a big way after the company went public. Um, and at the time, it was a $3 billion foundation focused on doing um, really good things for vulnerable children and families. Okay. So she's in this audience. The, it was a or he, he that he, managed that foundation. He worked at the foundation. He worked at that foundation. Right. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And they just happened to have a new position that was called the Deputy Director of Neighborhood Transformation uh, for their what they call their Atlanta Civic Site. And so a civic site is a place where the Casey Foundation has a, a, a long, entrenched place of where they're going to be. Okay. Turned out that this place was in... Um, they they bought a surplus building from uh, Atlanta Public School System and spent a million dollars to renovate it and do everything. And so when they decided where they wanted to go, they picked the five neighborhoods that had the highest incidence of children and families living in poverty, and they wanted to locate there. Okay. And the work that you're going to do there is to do community engagement and all the things that go along with the benefit neighborhood. So what I'd really learned is that now I'm moving from finance yes. to entrepreneurism. Now I'm getting into the nonprofit foundation cycle without even really realizing it. So this is the downturn. You're like, I need to find another job. Right, right. Did you then go work there? I worked there. And I okay. worked there from 2008 until 2012. And it really taught me a lot because, number one, we had very, very deep pockets yeah. during the time where nobody else was nobody doing anything. Nobody did, right. And what I got to do is I got to really learn how philanthropy can be the most impactful thing. Okay, so, nobody else does. So, you, so I know you have some items that you want to talk about today. <laughs> Because we talked about it yesterday, yeah, you guys. Um, anything around that that pocket of life or is what you want to talk about a different pocket of life? It's all the same because one thing has prepared me for the next thing. And so the reason I was able to come to Cincinnati and be successful um, with the job that I had here is I had prepared there. Yeah, but so yes. And... During that downturn, so many people were injured yes. from that. Yes. Some broken. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people were resilient, but yeah. yours is a great example of resiliency. It, it is, um, but I learned a lot there too. So, yeah. you know, when, when you see that kind of crisis in, in those kinds of neighborhoods, you see the impact of the harsh realities of economics on people there. And so what I got was a, a really close look at how people deal and survive in difficult times mm -hmm. and what people do that's impactful that can help and change it. But then what do people do that are just what I call poverty pimping? 
And so their oh. job is to lord over the people that don't have anything. And they have a job because there's people that was poor. And I was determined that I would never be a part of that. I wanted to use platforms, which is a big thing for me, to drive the impacts that we were trying to do. Okay, so give me an example of poverty pimping versus the positive. So um, poverty pimping is is... I don't think it happens to people intentionally. Yeah. It just happens over time when you're used to being in charge of significant pools of capital. And you get some people can get self-righteous and important. Yeah. Because they control ego. they can yeah, ego, right? They control money that people need and organizations have to have for them to be able to carry on what they want to do, especially in the nonprofit sector. And and is that like grants and foundations yes. can even yes. get that That's way? That's right. That's right. And so my thing was we were always constantly reminded that we didn't make any of this money and somebody left the money to the foundation to really drive outcomes to change people's lives. So there were good behaviors that you learned oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure, sure. Okay. Sure. So, but it's, it's just really important because, you know, folks, you know, if you're not in the space that, that I live in um, and, and work in, um, it, it's easy to act like that stuff doesn't exist because, you know, if, if you're, in, in a business, in a, in a thriving neighborhood, you wouldn't see the things that, you know, um, harsh realities of life. So when the downturn happened, were more, did you see how that impacted neighborhoods or were they already poor that it wasn't a huge impact? Like, how did that impact that So So Atlanta population? was ground zero for mortgage fraud. And, right. and foreclosure and where we were working were those places. And the reason that it happened there was there was a place where people that were unscrupulous could place large amounts of capital in housing deals mm -hmm. with nobody watching. And so we all know what happened at the end of it in terms of people, you know, predatory lending. We were seeing We were seeing that. We were seeing that. And the other thing that I didn't say that the foundation's work was, was to, you know, the first thing, it's like a doctor's office, right? So they had a people, a group of community engagement folks go out and meet the people and get them to come into the office and find out what their issues were mm -hmm. and put them on a course of action to help them get out of it, whether it was um, you need to finish your education, whether you had daycare issues, whether you had a record you needed expunged. But the other thing that we knew was that vulnerable families tend to do best if their kids are ready for school. Okay. Okay. So okay. we built an early daycare education facility next to the foundation. The next thing we learned is once they were ready to do that, where were they going to live? And the foreclosure crisis gave us the opportunity to buy houses and do really good affordable housing uh -huh. as a means to beginning to build that community back. The thing was you bring the people back, and then after you get the people back, then you can do the commercial things and the retail things to make the community whole again. Okay. That's where I learned how to do it on the ground and in mass. And then you got recruited yes. to come and work in Cincinnati, Cincinnati at the Port Authority. That's why I was ready to come here. And so what the Port gave me was um, the 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 uh, the city and countywide perspective instead of just one neighborhood to do it. Okay. And so I, by that time I had been, you know, I had been the banker. I had been the nonprofit executive. I'd been the entrepreneur. I'd been on the foundation side. I had never been on the public sector side before. Mm. And that's why I was excited to come and really help them start the real estate development um, function there. So what made you take the leap to go back out? 
to become an entrepreneur because now you have your own development company. So, you know, I was at the port for, you know, six and a half, almost seven years. And what we realized was that um, we had done what we needed to do to really seed um, investment in neighborhoods where a lot of the close neighborhoods, people were coming back, they wanted to be there. But what Cincinnati doesn't have is enough responsible development platforms that know how to work in neighborhoods, but also know how to work with electeds um, and Mm. economic development folks. And I had all of those sides and I said, well, really what you need is to be able to raise capital. So if you can raise capital so that you can work at scale, you can still leverage your relationships and community and your known commodity on the economic development side and the electeds, you should be able to build a, a scalable platform that can be effective in Cincinnati but also, that's the same story that is in Columbus yeah. and Dayton. Because you're doing some work in Columbus, too, right? We're working in Columbus and, 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 and Dayton, too. Oh, in Dayton. Yeah. Okay, what are you working on here in Cincinnati? So, um, in Cincinnati, we are working in the same close-ring neighborhood. So, we've got about 10 um, single-family rehabs that we're doing. Okay. And so the reason that we're we're doing them a certain that, neighborhood that, that, are you picking? So we're we're focused in the same neighborhoods that I worked on and set the strategy for at the port. Okay. So we're working in Evanston, we're working in Walnut Hills, we're working in Northside, and we're looking to continue to expand there. Some okay. More. The reason why we're there is that I believe that we are at a moment in time, and when you look at demographic patterns, people are moving. Uh, from suburbs back to urban centers, right? Yes. Um, and at the same time, you have a group of folks I call legacy residents that have been living there. And these neighborhoods have not been in vogue since Dr. King was alive in the mm-hmm, 60s. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's not there to help manage that interaction, you have the potential for all kinds of strife and arrest. And we are skilled to do that. And we want to we be there and we work. And we can make a difference, too. I love that. So it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing build, to do. And, and the thing is. What about I'm North sorry. Avondale? Because like North Avondale has all these old, beautiful it does. homes. It does. It, it does. It, it, it It's a perfect place to work. But you got to understand, we can't be everywhere at once right yeah, now. Yeah. And we want to go. You know, the the way that the, the, the playbook works is that the economic development groups go first and they set the base in the neighborhood so you can get the comps. Okay. Then the developers show up because you can get your pre- uh, projects financed and people want to buy and move there. Okay. So that's why we're doing there. It's no different than what... Um, I guess like uh, Model Group yes. and Urban Sites have done around the edges of 3CDC's platform. Okay. So what we're trying to do is this platform that we're setting up is not um, competitive. We know that we're a new platform. We're going to be here for a while. And we're going to scale, but we want to work with those big groups. And we can work together because what they're focused on is a lot of the larger multifamilies and we're single family and we'll do some commercial in business districts in those same neighborhoods. So there's room for us all to play. Yeah. And we've always set it up to go that way. So why is this so important to you? Um, I think that Again, I said we're at a moment in time, and, I, you know, when I came to Cincinnati, I was able to see it from a dispassionate perspective, right? You, you'd already lost your population and your jobs at that point, and it's the same story for Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I could see it because I'm not from here, but I realized this is a town where you can come in and you can make a difference. And mm-hmm. I figured out what my lane was, 
And I know that I think that we we all go to work every day because we want to make this a place where people want to come and thrive and stay. That work starts at the neighborhood level. Neighborhoods make up cities and cities make up regions. And so what you do at the neighborhood level matters. And the places that do the best job at that will win. And win is determined by people wanting to come and stay. But why? But what's the why? What's the motivation for you personally? Is there... Yeah, be, because where did this come from? Well, it's it's it, it's it's kind of it's me not giving back, but it's me. I think leveraging all the experiences that I've had. Because I always think right? successful people, um, they have that why, but they want to be a hero to somebody. Uh, for interesting some, that you say. So f- so for me, I feel like I'm. I've had in my life. I've had a lot of opportunities. Um, that I'm blessed to have, right? Yeah. It started off, you know, I, you know, my family saw the value in sending me to school. So I went to a school called Gilman School in Baltimore that's like St. X here. Okay. Right? Okay. And so that school trained boys to go off and lead the town eventually. Mm-hmm. I never got to go back and take my place there. But what it means is that I can see how you build business and you scale business and you use good character in your business. And I want to do it here. The other side of it is I'm very sensitive to the fact that as a black man, yeah, not everybody's had the same experiences, careers that I have. Yeah. And opportunity. I feel like if I don't do it, then who will do it? And how can I look at anybody else to do it when I can do it? I have the skills and now we have the platform to do it. Yeah. My whole big thing is based on, you know, I say everything starts with character. Then there's exposure because what you see, you can be. Mm. Out of that exposure, cool. what out of that exposure comes relationships. And the relationships are the people that can help you do it and help you set up a platform. And the platform is the machine that you use to bring all of those things to life. And if you don't have that, you can't you can't make the change that we and I learned that the hard way is when I started my first company, I didn't have the platform, I had the idea, I had the passion, but I wasn't ready. Nobody told me that I wasn't ready. Though. Yeah. So, you know, now, you know, at, at age, how did you know when you were ready this time? Because was there like a turning point or anything? It was, it, you know, the work at the port was so challenging, but it was so rewarding. How? Like, how was it challenging? Because we were going in to undo um, the results of, like I said, 50 years of bad policy, public policy, redlining, disinvestment, all of those things. Yeah. And so we had jobs to go in and kind of unwind that. Do people understand that, though? Do they intellectually understand that? Well, I, I, I don't. I think a lot of people do. The conversation's being louder and louder, right? Mm-hmm. But if you don't, most people don't think about it as deeply as I do. Yeah. Like neighborhoods don't just become bad. It it's a couple of things happen. The jobs leave. Yeah. The people that can leave leave. Properties values go down. Yeah. And and people that are looking to come and and take advantage on weak people move in. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you have a problem and that problem doesn't just stay there. It affects us all. Yeah. So do you think that we could have done anything differently with OTR and West End? Like, do you think those those people that were uh, what is, legacy yeah. neighbor yeah. legacy legacy residents residents? Yeah. I wasn't here for for uh, OTR, but I do know that the best way that I think that you do that is you got to have deep 
engagement with the community mm-hmm. because the folks in those places know what the problems are, what the opportunities are. They just don't have the relationships and capital to do anything about it. Yeah. And so a lot of times you show up and people are angry and they're angry because people haven't listened to them. Do you feel like people are less angry because you, when you come in like to that neighborhood because you look like them so somewhat? Like, is there a difference there versus a white female or man walking I, I, in? I think it depends. It depends what neighborhood it is, right? And so yeah. I, I think that um, I get a half a chance more. Yeah. But at the same time, um, unfortunately, there have been people that have come in that, that weren't on the up and up, too. And so people are skeptical. So they're not used to, in many situations, somebody showing up saying, I really am here to help. And I really do have the information. And I really do have access to capital to do what we say. And I really do care what you think. And let's go together. Yeah. And so all you can do at that point is, you know, invite them to come along. Right. And that's with any relationship. Yeah. 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 Okay. I loved that comment that you made about exposure. Um what you can see is what you can be. Yeah. That's such a great quote. Yeah. People Darren. give me crap all the time about, you know, you have a suit on every time I see you. One of, one not of my, today you don't. One, no, not we'll today. We'll show them not a picture today. of you and I. One, yeah. of, one of my leadership classmates told me that. The leadership I, Cincinnati? Leadership class. Yeah, 37 best ever. Right. <laughs> we, we know that, of course. <laughs> yeah, But they, they, they said that I probably cut grass in a suit. So I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> But but the thing is, I do yeah. it intentionally because I want to be something different when I show up there saying, yes. this is what you have to do, right? Yeah. This is what you can do. Oh, Here's yeah. a different way. So Totally. So Okay. What else? What have we not talked about? We haven't talked about um, Civitas as much as we need to talk about Civitas. I mean, we you know, it, it's a company, but it's, it's just, it's a platform to drive change. Yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky enough that I'm being able to to take a passion and make a business out of it and scale it and see if I can do more. So I was recently listening to Sarah Blakely's masterclass. You know, she's the CEO of Spanx. Yes. And she... Started in Atlanta. Did it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, she talked about how do you find your purpose which is what you're describing, which I would say a lot of listeners really struggle with. How do I really understand what my purpose is? And she said, and I'm going to pull my notes up here. She said, it's when these three things come together. You think about what do I enjoy? What am I good at? And how will I serve the world? Or what breaks my heart if I don't? Yep. So do you think those three things apply to you? What do I enjoy? Mm -hmm. Real estate. What am I good at? I'm good at building relationships. I was going to say people. Yeah. People. And how will I serve the world? Yeah. What would break your heart? If I don't try. Um, I used to say to my staff at the port um, that the work that we're doing is literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. And when you can invest in a neighborhood and create an opportunity for people to work and property values to increase, propensity to cr- to do crime or fall into it decreases. Mm. And so if I don't do that, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen to us all? Because we don't escape it. We don't escape it. We would be having conversations, trying to raise money at the port. And sometimes we'd be talking to far left folks. Yeah. And we'd tell them that, you know, the people with the money aren't bad. 
you, you, you can't, you know, puppy dogs and ponytails can't go on everything. Yeah. It's good to have it, but you can't do it. And then on the other side, when we're talking to really hard right folks, yeah. um, you're saying, listen, we're all patriots, right? Right. And if we are patriots, don't we want to create an opportunity for people to work? Because when people are incarcerated, um, it costs $45,000 a year with no follow-up return. And we're at a point where we have the highest percentage of fighting age men and women locked up than at any other time before. So think about what that means now. Really? You as a as a you know hardcore business owner have an opportunity to do something good and make money. Yeah. Why would you not do that? That's interesting. And so that would usually kind of change the dynamic a little yeah. bit. I still say the same thing. We're all patriots. We all love to do the right thing. Why can't we all do something together? That sounds funny. Why can't we all just get along? <laughs> totally, yeah. Yes. But, 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 but seriously, we can do what's right, make this the best place, set a template for how to do it, and, and, and be better along the way. Can you share maybe one of your most favorite stories? Could be something that you did with the port, something that you did with Civitas that like I just love our listeners love a heartfelt story of of somebody's life or that you really impacted or or a neighborhood Jeez. that you're like, gosh, I, I feel mean, good. Like when you went to bed at night, you felt good. I feel good that we've changed um, the outlook in Evanston. And I get to continue it. When we went to when we went to work in Evanston yeah. in two thousand and late fourteen, there okay. hadn't been a market rate housing transaction in nine years. Then. Wait, what does that mean? What does that mean? There hadn't been a for sale sign on a property that sold for nine years. They were what? they were small, you know, flippers. And Evanston is another neighborhood of big houses. And so what you would see is Investors coming in and taking one of those beautiful houses and making it into a six-family house and charging families that thought or couldn't do any better seven, eight hundred dollars a piece for rooms, right? And so what that did was number one, it crushed property values. Yeah. And we were able to turn that around because who lives there? They're usually older women, senior citizens, mm. um, who couldn't afford to maintain the house because the neighborhood was there, the bank wouldn't land. When they died, there was no asset of value to pass on to future generations, right? Wow. So think about what that means in the basis of most families' wealth. It's usually a house there totally. at some point. Totally. So we were able to disrupt that by intentionally investing there, putting houses there, engaging the neighborhood, doing a plan. Um, and my company now gets to do the next iteration of it just there. And um, it sounds small, but that's a really important story. That will get played out in neighborhoods in Columbus, in Dayton, you know, in Cincinnati and everywhere else, because it's the same thing that we're talking. This is a top five issue of our time in this country right now. How how you deal with neighborhoods. Really? And we're here. We're here. We're, you know, Cincinnati. You know, the joke is that, you know, things happen 10 years later. Here, yeah, yeah. But but we're doing very good things here in terms of um collaboration and working together, public and private sector, too. Well, and and I also know that um, friends of mine that work in San Francisco, they, who work for tech companies, yeah. tech companies brought in yeah. um, consultants to talk about homelessness yeah. issue. 
And everybody assumes that the reason why there are so many homeless people in San Francisco is because of the weather. It's nice to live there. It's actually because of housing. Right. Yep. Right. And the housing got so expensive and there was no mass transportation that could take them from the outer into the city and work. And where you live matters. There's data that shows here that, you know, um, I think in, in Cincinnati, the last time I saw it, it's like a, a, a eight or nine year difference between you living in a really disinvested neighborhood picket and the most affluent neighborhoods in town. Because if you think about it, um, you're more likely to have better air quality in a better neighborhood. You have better food. You have higher property values. You have lower crime. You have less stress or different kinds of stress. All of that plays out onto your life. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, it's building a house, but it's really about building community. And building community is what we all want. We all want good things. And then you can build a big-ass business around it. <laughs> okay. I that? actually think that that was the most perfect ending. <laughs> a big-ass business a big around ass business, it. yeah. But, but you're right about the community. And you yeah. know what? As human beings, that's what everybody wants is yeah. community. Yeah. And you're helping create that. We, we're, we're working very diligently to do so. High five. High five you. All right. You are High awesome. Four, yeah. High right. four. We missed. It was a missed. Oh my God. <laughs> you and my buddy Matt Fitzpatrick are the two people that you could say the and I'd crack up at you. Awesome. Um, Darren, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And sorry it took so long. It's all right. I you know what? You play hard to get, buddy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah. It was worth the wait. Nice, nice. Thank you. Thank you. In order to keep the show going and growing, we need the help of great advertisers. But we want to make sure these partners are people you actually want to hear from. So we need to learn a little bit more about you. Please go to failforwardpod.com backslash survey and take an anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. Again, that's failforwardpod.com backslash survey. I want to thank our sponsor, Corporate Consciousness, and everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Fail Forward Pod. Mm-hmm.